What's up, Joe? What's up, everybody? The NBA, like every other major sports league, has suspended play due to the spread of the coronavirus. While the NBA remains on hiatus, veteran basketball analyst and former NBA scout Antonio Williams has remained active, putting out informative content on various platforms. We're talking to Antonio today about his recent series on the NBA's 2020 Hall of Fame class. In addition, Antonio shares his thoughts with us on the possible return of the NBA and the upcoming ESPN documentary on Michael and the Chicago Bulls. So sit tight as we chop it up with our man Antonio Williams on sports. 360. Joining me today on Sports 360 is Antonio Williams. Antonio is a man of many talents, sports management, sports media, sports marketing, and probably a few other things that begin with the letter M. (laughs) Antonio, how you doing, man? (laughs) I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well, Jeff. Thank you for having me on. And uh, how are you? I'm doing well, too. You know, like everybody else, as you know, um, as I have guests on during this time, you know, we're all in various stages of lockdown across the country, but doing the best we can. Family's healthy. I'm healthy. So grateful for that. How, how are you making out so far uh, in this unusual climate of ours now? Uh, same thing. I'm just very thankful that my family's healthy, I'm healthy, and uh, just taking this time, and because we in this business, as you know, Jeff, we're traveling all the time, so um, just having the time to really strengthen those connections with your family and your loved ones is, is something that, that I certainly am looking to uh, take advantage of for sure. No doubt, no doubt. Um, and so, you know, and, and look, we're all hoping that the country and the world will come out of this uh, coronavirus sooner than later, of course. Um, of course. But, uh, Antonio, I wanted to have you on today for a number of reasons. Um, first of, w- of which is you've recently completed a Hall of Fame series covering the 2020 NBA Hall of Fame class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, you know, well received. It was a fantastic series. It was well done. And I really enjoyed it. And I wanted you to come on for a couple of reasons, but primarily to discuss that because, again, congratulations to you for mm-hmm. a really insightful series that was well done on what is perhaps the greatest, you know, Hall of Fame class in NBA history. So first of all, congratulations on on, on good work. Um, and I want to talk Thank to you. you about the series and, you know, get you to tell us, you know, what went into it, why you started and everything else. But again, congratulations on a, a great job. Uh, first off, I appreciate those flattering words. It, it It really makes me feel good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to, dive in and take that journey with me. I enjoyed it uh, immensely. And I decided to do the series because right now, of course, there isn't a lot going on in the sports world. There isn't a lot in general um, in terms of media coverage that is, is, uh, makes us feel good. And so I wanted to recognize these inductees, especially during this time, because um, with and rightfully so, health is wealth, and it's the number one priority, as I said when I first started the series. So, all, almost all of our energy and focus should be on that. And during this time, um, maybe those Hall of Fame inductees, even though it's um, potentially the greatest on paper in the history of the Hall of Fame, maybe some of those accolades, maybe some of that adulation and admiration and respect may be sort of dampened and tempered a little bit because of the time that we're in. So I wanted to 
take some time to uh, recognize all of them and being a, a lover of this game, um, all of them have had an impact on my socialization in this game to a, a certain degree for sure. So wanted to take some time to um, recognize them. And also while I'm recognizing them, talk about some of the aspects of their accomplishments that may go underlooked. Uh, uh, maybe they are not as represented as much as they should be. So wanted to make sure that I shine a light, light on some of those accomplishments as well. Yeah, and you, and you did a great job with that. And before getting into some of the individual segments that you did, you know, I think anyone who listened, and if, and if anyone has not listened, I encourage them to do so, to check out your Hall of Fame series. Because what becomes clear right away is the depth of your basketball knowledge. Um, why don't you just give us a little bit of your background as to how you developed that eye for talent and and a clear eye for analyzing the game the way you do because it clearly comes through in your series again i appreciate that um i'd probably say it would go back to this is funny um i'm, I'm dating myself here but this is there was no um social media no video games no internet and um so when you would even when video games became, when they started to become common, um, I remember having an Atari and playing video games or playing sports uh, games on that Atari. And when you played those games, um, there was no commentary. Um, so it would just be the game and it would be some music to sort of entertain you while you're playing the game. And so what I would do when I was a kid and I played these games because sports were such a big part of my socialization, um, I would turn the volume down so I wouldn't hear the music and I would commentate the games as hmm. I was playing them. And um, also too, the other thing I would do is I collected football, baseball and basketball cards when, when I was young as well. And I would try to get for all the cards that I collected, I would try to get two of each player. So that way I could save one and never touch it and it can remain in mint condition. And the other one, I would actually get on the floor and play uh, games with them. So I would play basketball with my basketball cards, et cetera. And, um, and I would commentate those games while I was playing with my cards. So, and reading the back of those cards, that's, uh, my mother says, all the time. That's how I learned how to read. Um, I would read those, the back of those cards and I would remember the uh, statistics and all of the vital information that was provided for each athlete on the back of those cards. And again, so that was combined with my love of sports, my participation in all sports um, um, when I was young. And that sort of kind of formed my passion for the industry and as well as um, learning to evaluate talent and um, and and again that's how my interest grew that's how I got into it and it was great it was great so and that ultimately formed the basis of my um, and of course my experience from a professional standpoint all of those things sort of form my basis for the information that I provided in that Hall of Fame series and how I conveyed that information. Right. And on the professional side, right, your experience as a NBA scout obviously um, was important. NBA scout for the Phoenix Suns for a number yeah. of years, where yeah. I'm sure you honed your your skills and, and you know, refined that passion uh, and utilize that passion in, in, in that regard. But let's jump into the series a little bit, because again, we're talking about a, an extraordinary hall of fame class. And you, you did a, at first it was a four part series, right. On the four players, right. Tamika mm -hmm. Catchings, um, Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan, and Kobe Bryant. But then you added a fifth, in uh, Bentley coach Barbara Stevens. But let's talk about yeah. the players first 
and you know uh, the floor is yours I, I mean you we can go anywhere you want but uh again you know just just take us into what went into um developing the series and and talking about it and 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 bringing it out for all of us to enjoy i'll start with uh tamika catching then i want to say something here even though uh, my experience is primarily on um, the the men's basketball side. Of course, as a player and uh, my professional experience working as well. Um, I also, my first job when I graduated from uh, college after I finished playing, and uh, my first job was actually in, in uh, the NBA league office, and I did a lot of work in uh, WNBA basketball operations. And I referenced that, and I, and I loved it because I, as a fan of basketball, I, I don't separate in terms of I only watch men or I only watch women. I actually watch both because as a person that loves this game and appreciates this game and the artistry of this game as much as I do, I appreciate excellence. And it doesn't matter what um, package that it comes in, per se. Um, so I am a big women's basketball fan and I say this to my wife all the time who also played at a very high level um, and I hope people don't take this the wrong way but as a women's basketball fan I don't watch the game because I feel like this is the way that I support women I watch the game because they are excellent basketball players and I appreciate excellence Mm -hmm. so it's not a social statement that I watch and love and follow women's basketball. So um, with that being said, um, I wanted to take that time to really talk about Tamika Catchings because it's awesome that the Basketball Hall of Fame recognized her accomplishments, but and it's also great because I feel like when we talk about the, the greats of the, um, the WNBA, I feel like her accomplishments are sort of under, they are underrepresented. And she should certainly be in that conversation for the greatest player to ever lace them up in the WNBA to this point. And there are a bunch of, a bunch of reasons why, why she's probably not mentioned as much as she should be. Um, and, and because she's not known as this, dynamic score at least when you when you talk to a a layman's fan per se but she's actually third all time in scoring in WNBA history but her greatest contributions are her energy and all the things that she provides as an energy player and oftentimes we don't see energy players known as transcendent or franchise players because again as i was saying in that series to place the scoring uh, responsibility, the primary scoring responsibility, and also that responsibility of being that energizer bunny, to place that on one person, that's a huge ask, and that's a huge lift, and she accomplished that seamlessly, and she deserves everything that's coming her way in terms of her admiration and, and recognition for sure. Yeah, and Tamika Catchings, obviously, one of the greats on the college level. And as you said, you know, once she got to the yeah, WNBA on, on the professional level. And, you know, one of the things that you did throughout this series is that you highlighted, you know, certain aspects of each player that perhaps was un- underappreciated overall. Like, for example, you talked about catching being, you know, bringing the energy scoring, but also playing on the other end of the court as well, playing defense, yes. getting steals, and yes. so forth. Um, when you talked about some of the other players, um, and you even you know, said it right out front, you were a big footwork guy. So you were talking about the footwork, not only of the big men like Duncan and KG, but also of Kobe, right. the guy who right. plays on the perimeter. And I thought that was insightful to talk about that the importance of footwork uh, for a guard. So, but, but overall, I think throughout the series, when you talked about each of these four players, 
you made sure to give us, you know, take us a little bit deeper and tell us some things that maybe aren't always associated with each player. And I thought that was extremely well done. I appreciate that. Thank you. And um, so, yes, that was the idea to bring that, that scouting perspective to really deep dive and talk about some of those positive attributes that each person brought to their respective teams and positively impacted winning at the highest levels because of not only those things that are at the surface level that they accomplish and accomplish with, with grace and accomplish with regularity, but also those things that when you deep dive and you figure out what's the DNA of a winning team and a team that wins at a very, very high level consistently, what are those things that each player brought to the table as well? And uh, also, too, the thought process was to, when you're talking, Jeff, to players that developing players, and when you look at these all-time greats, you immediately start to think that they are larger than life. They are able to accomplish things that us as, quote-unquote, mortal humans cannot do. So my thought process as well was to bring some of those things and show how these things that all of us can accomplish serve as the basis for the superhuman things that they actually performed on a regular basis. Yeah, and see, it was it's that kind of analysis that I thought was really fascinating because, you know, when, when and I'm going to jump to something you did more recently where you started what I hope will be a series as well on the NBA playoffs. And you yeah. started with Kobe Bryant and you broke down his game-winning shot uh, against Phoenix, I believe it was, um, in yeah, game was four. Great. Yeah, and and you, you you just simply you know made the point of how he grabbed the ball with with time running out after a jump ball, he slowed it down, and he started to rely on things that he simply had practiced and things that anyone could practice, right? right. It, it wasn't right. as if he was just relying on, as you say, his cheat code, right? The athletic skill right. that is just transcendent. That's important as always is. But you, you you mentioned how he planted his foot and that allowed him to square up to the basket. And anyone mm -hmm. can do that. Anyone can Absolutely. practice that. And I think that's your point. Right. That's exactly my point, where you're taking these against these people that have accomplished these superhuman, um, they have these superhuman abilities at least, when we look at that, we and, and, and rightfully so, as I say that, I certainly don't want to. Part of the reason why I did the series was to respect these uh, players and their accomplishments. So I don't want to uh, oversimplify and, and, and make it seem as if I am not recognizing the greatness, but I certainly recognize the greatness. But the greatness was attained because they – actually mastered the simple and one of the terms I like to use when I'm talking with developing players is if you want to be unstoppable you have to master the predictable and um, and so when you look at that it's I know this may seem monotonous I know this may seem simple but these are the things that we all can accomplish these are the things that we can all easily do with dedication and focus and those things actually serve as force multipliers and they become spectacular. And that's the, um, that's the primary theme that I was trying to convey when uh, I talked about these great players that have done things that we all in this game sort of dream to accomplish. Yeah. And sticking with Kobe for a second in, in your series, you made a point that I never thought about before regarding Kobe. And and I will confess right now, I'm a Kobe fan. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people, you know, have some issues sometimes with Kobe or maybe his attitude or whatever, or what they perceive to be his attitude. But I've always been a Kobe fan from the time he was throwing up air balls <laughs> in that series against Utah. Because <laughs> right. I said, right. man, he's not afraid to put, to put him up, you know? Not afraid so I've always been a fan of Kobe's. 
Um, but you said something that I never thought about as it relates to Kobe. And you said that big men didn't have to, and I'm paraphrasing, but your point was that big men that he played with did not have to change his their game for him. Which sometimes when you have a dominating guard, like they want the big man to clear out, clear out, clear out, so right. that they can go right. to work. But Kobe didn't he, he didn't do that. He was able to do what he could do with his skills and dominate the game the, the way he could while allowing the big man to continue to be true to who he was, whether it was Shaq or whether it was Paul Gasol, and they could still do work down in the block. And I thought that was an interesting comment that I never thought about before. No, so that was um, when you watch the game and, you know, again, this sort of comes from my um, analysis as a scout. My, it comes from my experience as a player as well. Um, when, you ha- when you are – efficient, meaning that you have the ability to score from all areas on the floor, it allows you to, it allows other people to be essentially the best versions of themselves. And you essentially serve as a band-aid. So whatever deficiency your team may have, you're able to plug that deficiency. So if you don't have people that can score in the paint, okay, I can score in the post. If we have people that are very adept at scoring in the paint, and that's their sweet spot. I can score in the mid-range and the long-range areas, which allows them to continue to uh, contribute and contribute in their respective comfort zones. And I felt like Kobe does – I felt like he didn't get as much credit for having that skill as he should have. I mean, I'll go back to something that you said. Jeff, and again, this is about how we can take these superhuman beings and sort of personalize them and make it relevant to our abilities. You said about those air balls that he shot in Utah. Um, When you watch Kobe and you watched him and we listened to him talk, the interesting thing about those air balls, and this is just my personal opinion, the interesting thing about those air balls people will naturally assume that those air balls actually vaulted him and catapulted him to becoming, to transitioning from Kobe Bryant to Kobe and the Black Mamba. And actually, when I analyze Kobe and I watch him and I listen to him, those air balls had nothing to do with his development. And the reason why I say that is because Kobe when you watch players that are all-time greats and they're able to sustain their success, oftentimes, and this comes from being a player as well, you're not motivated by what people are saying, good, bad, or indifferent about you. Your motivation is intrinsic. That fire comes from within. You want to be the best player that you can be. And it doesn't matter if Antonio Williams writes that Kobe Bryant can't shoot. That's not a motivating factor at all. And, and so with Kobe, when I watched that, this transition that he made from being Kobe Bryant to Kobe was going to happen because he had the, the drive intrinsically, and he was one of the terms I like to use, he, that he was native to that platform of success, meaning that's where he originated from. And no external force served as the motivating factor to get Kobe to be the player that he became. Because if you notice when he talked and when, when he did interviews after that moment, there wasn't much mention of those three shots because I don't think it motivated him at all, if that makes sense. No, it does. It does. And I think if, if you've watched Kobe and listened to him over the years, you know that his drive to be the best you know, came, as you said, from a different place. It wasn't external. It wasn't, oh, I'm going to prove, you know, you wrong. He knew what he had. He just wanted, he was going to work to get it out. And I think that's the difference. He knew what he had on the inside of him. Um, And so, yeah, I enjoyed, I enjoyed, you know, your, your analysis of Kobe. Um, You know, you talked about Duncan and, and, you know, one of the things about, about, about uh, Tim 
one of the more, first of all, one of the more unassuming superstars you probably will probably ever see in any right. sport. Right. Um, but I thought, you know, the thing that was always interesting about Duncan was, you know, if you watched the Spurs over the years, you saw how he allowed, uh, and I think that's the right phrase to use, he allowed Popovich to coach him. Absolutely. And I think that was important as him being the best player on the team, Hall of Fame. You know, he was on the road to the Hall of Fame. And you saw that, you know, probably midway through his career, if not before. But yet and still, he allowed Popovich to coach him. He was he was the ultimate in in a team player. And, you know, again, for a superstar as good as he was, um, those aren't the types of characteristics that you often see in players of his caliber no for sure and and part of the reason why you don't see those types of characteristics in players oftentimes because when you are um aspiring to be an nba player jeff you are trying to be part of that 470 club meaning there are 470 people in the world that give or take a few here and there that are actually performing in the NBA. Um, For as long as the NBA has been around, we are coming up on 4,000 people total that have ever played in the NBA. And that it speaks to how rare um, an accomplishment it is to play in the NBA. So when you are up against those types of odds, your disposition and your drive and your makeup and your competitive nature has to be different. It doesn't oftentimes lead you to be deferential in personality, willing be communal in approach, meaning you're willing to share because of the sheer odds of you accomplishing that you're up against to accomplish your dream. It almost lends itself to you not, you almost can't be that way. And um, so as we say that, I want to to really peel the onion on that one and unpack that because when people say, oh, man, these athletes are are not nice people, well, to accomplish the things that they have to accomplish and to do it at the level that they have to do it, sometimes it's hard to be, um, to, I guess, outwardly exhibit humility. And Tim Duncan made all sorts of financial um, sacrifices, and I use that in quotations as well, because when you have a player of his caliber who uh, routinely does not sign maximum level contracts in terms of how much he can be paid, that message that it sends to the rest of the team is if Tim Duncan is not doing that, and he's arguably the greatest player to ever play his position, if he's not signing those types of deals, if he is allowing the coach to hold him accountable and yell at him and coach him hard, then you have to do the same thing. So, and it allows you to set your culture. It allows the players to police themselves. And we know when you have a great team, it's not just the organizational principles. It's not just the coaching principles. The players have to hold themselves accountable on the floor. And when you have a player that has the type of personality that a Tim Duncan has, it's easy for to set, to set those winning principles as your principles and the success speaks for itself. Yeah. And look, Tim Duncan, you know, um, you know, as I said earlier, one of the more unassuming superstars we've ever seen and probably will see. And, you know, and part of a a culture and a franchise that I think, even with some of their more recent struggles, continues to be the uh, a model franchise and how they operate. Um, Now, you also, we had on um, Kevin Garnett, um, the big ticket. And, you know, Kevin Garnett, there's a lot you can say, obviously, about him and all these players. But, you know, the one thing that stood out for me was, you know, your observation of how he led the team in scoring, rebounds, steals, assists, and so forth as a big man, right? Um, Right, right. And how, 
you know, at the time he came into the league and he came right out of high school, that the game wasn't the game we see today where it's so dominated on the perimeter with three-point shooting. We had some elite big men during the time when KG was, you know, manning the post and playing, right. um, um, you know, in, in the NBA. So, um, and for him to come in and to have the versatility of the talent that he had right out of high school was really impressive. And, you know, obviously he went on win the championship with Boston and all the rest of it, but um, his all around game um, probably is not as appreciated as it should be. No, um, certainly agree with that. And, you know, one of the things that I, again, his passion is the foundation for his game. And I really wanted to, in the series, talk about how and go behind the curtain a little bit and, and talk about how when we are evaluating players, especially when we're evaluating bigs and big guys, no disrespect, but big guys don't have to love the game in order to be professionals the way that, say, I have to love the game as a point guard. Uh, because, and the way that I like to um, phrase it is, as a guard, I had to prove that I could play. A big has to prove that they can't. So the onus of, of, of um, sort of ascertaining if you could play or not is different, and it, it, it's in a different lens when you're guarding, uh, when you are evaluating bigs versus uh, guards. And Kevin Garnett approached the game with the fervor and intensity and level of engagement and fire that I would as a guard and how I played. And it's amazing to see a big that has that type of energy and devotion to the game. And typically when they're that athletic and they have that type of devotion to the game, it's almost um, fail-proof. And they, they almost will undoubtedly be successful in the NBA. And so Kevin Garnett bring it because the other thing is that passion actually leads you to the gym. It's the bridge to the gym. Because you love the game so much, you improve. And that was the basis of all of these things that Kevin Garnett did. And to your point, his versatility is probably something that we don't talk about as much as we should. And the fact that he was a, in my, in my eyes, a pioneer because he actually opened NBA teams up to selecting high school players more because there was that 20 year gap from the time that KG was selected in, in, in uh, 1995 to when Bill Willoughby and uh, Daryl Dawkins were selected in 1975. And the year before that, in 1974, Moses Malone was selected, all-time great, was selected by the Utah Stars. So, um, so there was a 20, 21-year gap between the last high school players that were selected to Kevin Garnett. And teams, there was trepidation on the part of teams to select more high school players um, until Kevin Garnett sort of showed those teams in the world that with the tight, with the right support system and the right disposition by the player that a high school player can be successful when they come to the NBA. So he should be recognized for that. And then also too, he was a pioneer in the regard, in this regard, that to your point exactly, Jeff, and I wanted to talk about that, he played in the league that was dominated by big men. He also played in a league that because it was dominated by big men, it was also a very physical league. And, and so he competed through all of that physicality. He, and, and, he, and he excelled through all of that physicality, physicality, even though if you look at his physique, he wasn't hulking in nature. And his, not only his skill level, and one, he was stronger than what he looked, and, not, and his skill level and his willingness to compete and his energy helped him to compete through that physicality. And he was also one of the, as we now, to your point, Jeff, have this league where it's sort of positionless and bigs are 
doing things away from the basket. And you see bigs facilitate. Well, Kevin Garnett was part of ushering that era in. And where he deserves a lot of recognition is because even though sometimes I can tell you this as a scout, when we're looking at players and someone will say to me, hey, I have this stretch four that you should check out, or I have this big that can play on the perimeter that you should check out. Well, one of my first questions is, is this a big that has the ability to play on the perimeter and in the paint, or is this a big that is totally averse to the paint and allergic to the paint and wants no part of it and lives exclusively on the perimeter. That's different. And Kevin Garnett lived in both worlds. And, and, and that's very important to know. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's so much you can say about all of these, you know, all of these uh, athletes and listen, I want to, I want to move on and, 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 Obviously, um, check out the series. You also did a, a piece on Barbara Stevens, the coach at at, at Bentley. Um, yeah. But I want to I want to touch on a couple of other things before I let you go. And, and one is where we are right now with the coronavirus, and um, you know, with the NBA like other sports being you know, on, on a hiatus being suspended. First of all, and there's been talk though of the NBA returning uh, at some point, there's been talk about all the teams resuming and playing in one location in Las Vegas, where it will be easier to monitor players and others. Cause it's not just players. Obviously there'll be thousands of people involved in bringing the game back. Um, uh, but, you know, a place where everyone involved can be monitored, can be tested and, and so forth. Um, I want to get your thoughts, one, on whether or not you believe we'll see NBA basketball, you know, right. the conclusion of this season. Mm-hmm. Um, and second, of, you know, what are your thoughts about the, the potential of playing all the games in Las Vegas? Um, first off, I, I do think that the, the league, I think all of the leagues, um, but especially here with the NBA, I think the league is exhausting all options uh, to try to um, bring the season back and conclude the season and crown a champion um, and make it as conventional as, as possible in this unconventional time. Um, so I think for a multitude of reasons, the league wants to try and come back but the league has also had a great relationship with players um so i think they want to make sure that they are protective of the players protective of and that extends to the players families as well and also making sure that we protect the fans um because the fans are the reason why the league goes and um and there are other countries that are Um, a little bit more advanced in terms of where they are in the stage of dealing with this pandemic. Um, And now the NBA is certainly looking at those other countries and seeing if they are successful in creating some sort of environment where they can come and conclude their season. Um, In China, there was efforts to try and bring um, the season back um, recently, a couple of days ago, but they also decided to now try and resume their season in July. And I, I think that the NBA is certainly looking at some of the other leagues around the world where, again, their operations are based in a country that may be a little more advanced in terms of where they are in dealing with this pandemic because it reached them earlier. So um, I I think that the NBA would try to do everything they possibly can to bring the season back. I have personally a hard time believing that in some way, shape, or form that the league will not come back. I think, um, and again, no one knows the future, but I have a hard time believing that we will play this season and there will be no sort of conclusion. And it'll look different, but I don't think that we'll play it I don't think it'll be a situation where it will just be uh, this season just has an asterisk because 
we didn't play some sort of tournament, some sort of 25 games, something to give us some sort of conclusion. Yeah, and and I would tend to agree with you. Um, and again, I think some of these leagues and all of these leagues really that are bleeding revenue right now have to find a way um, to make up that revenue if you know the situation allows, because obviously what is most important is the health and safety of fans, players, and everyone involved. Um, but assuming that you know things get better and the curve flattens and, and all the rest of it, and we come out of the grips of this virus, you would think that the NBA and the other leagues are going to look to capture as much revenue as they possibly can. Um, But having said that, one of the things that is being talked about with the NBA and with the other leagues as well is that if and when games resume, it's almost a certainty that they will resume without fans in the stands. Uh, As a former player, as a guy who's been around the game for a long time, what are your thoughts about that? Um, For me personally, uh, and I know some of the players have alluded to this, Jeff, um, for me personally, some of – I personally prefer to play on the road more than I uh, prefer playing at home. And it's because when you're on that road and – and you go and you go into an arena, and we're speaking in NBA terms, you go into an arena and 20,000 people are against you, um, it has a way of really making that brotherhood and that bond that you have with your teammates stronger. And because all you have to rely on potentially are yourselves. And, um, you, and so in addition to relying on, that brotherhood and that bond that you have with your teammates, some of us also relied on the fact that the arena is loud and nobody is cheering for you. You, you, you're competitive. You use your competitive nature and you leverage the fact that everyone is against you and that propels you to greatness. And um, so with that being said, I, I think for some players, not all, but for some players, it will be very tough to be in an environment where you all are playing and then there's nobody in the arena and you don't have that energy from the fans to leverage and bounce off of to uh, make great plays and make uh, positive contributions to your team. So that will be a, um, an interesting dynamic. It will be a dynamic, especially when you are um, one of those teams that, say you're the Lakers or you're the Clippers or you're the Bucks, and you're one of these teams that you, you are a great team. You're powered by a great player or great players. And those great players are used to playing in arenas that are packed. Um, it will be certainly a different experience for them. And uh, I'd be interested, interested to see how those players um, deal with being in an environment where there's no fans. It will have to be tough because, as you said, as a player, you kind of fed off the road crowd. And obviously, as a player, too, I mean, the home crowd can give you that energy as well in terms of support and everything else. So, yeah, playing without fans is going to be a challenge, I'm sure, for the players. It's going to be a little bit different for, you know, the, the fans who are consuming the games. But I think fans are going to be so excited to watch NBA basketball again that they'll get used to that aspect of it. Right. Here's, a, here's, a, here's something, and I don't know how the broadcast partners are going to deal with it, but I'm sure they will. Antonio, you played. You know what is said out there on the court. Right. And now <laughs> you have a an empty arena and players out there competing and saying the stuff that they say, there's going to be, I don't know how they're going to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? But no, the network's going to sure. have to figure that out. No, that that's, that's the truth. And, and I was going to touch on that, <laughs> but uh, I wanted to be respectful. <laughs> yeah, but it's a reality though, isn't it, it though? It's it, a reality. It is. It is because, reality. man, that the language that goes on on the court 
And and everything's in fast, you know, everything's in real time, right? Players are running right. up and down the court from right. offense to defense. It transitions very quickly. It's not like football where there's an offensive team and a defensive team. It's mm-hmm. not like baseball where people are spread apart. You know what I mean? Right, <laughs> um, right. Everything is happening very quickly, and there's a lot of banter going on, and it's not all family entertainment as far as the language is concerned. So, there's no question about that. Yeah. Um, that's going to be interesting because you can imagine that, you know, those things could be picked up because here's the thing. There has to be some sound, doesn't there? Because you're not going to have the sound of the crowd. And I think if you're going to broadcast it, it can't be like you're watching a silent movie. You know what I mean? So they're going to have right. to have some right. sound that comes across, you know, to make up for the absence of fans. And yet you have, you know, this dynamic that we're talking about. And as unfortunate as it is, it's a, it's a reality. <laughs> and I don't know what the <laughs> networks are going to do about that if and when we get to that point, but they're going to have to figure that one out. No, for sure. And when, from a branding perspective, um, when you're talking about the networks and the partners, it's interesting from a branding perspective and goes back into how the branding perspective ties with the competitive nature for a player. So, Again, when you don't have that crowd noise, and I'm glad you you opened the book for this, Jeff. Um, <laughs> when you don't have that crowd noise to mask at some of the things that are being said, now do players are they more guarded in what they're saying, and 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 then with them being more guarded and what they're saying, does that negatively impact their energy and how they compete? Because to your point, this will be totally different than. When, you, when a player is mic'd up for a certain amount of time and you can edit out all the things that are said and the player knows that they are wearing that mic and then for the rest of the game, they're free to do whatever it is that they want to do because they have that crowd noise. This is the players don't have to be mic'd and you will hear everything that's said. And so to your point, it, it, would, be, it, it would be interesting to see if players, because – I can say this from a branding standpoint. When you have to have a real conversation about what your primary focus is when, of course, the way that you play the game and, and to your level of, of, of positive impact on the game will determine how marketable you are. Um, but at the same time, with the emergence of a Michael Jordan, now more players are concerned about their brand before they even actually enter the NBA. So with that being said, are players going to go into these games and be concerned about their brand partnerships outside of what they, outside of their NBA team and outside of their NBA platform, will that color how they compete on the floor because they don't want to say certain things and get so involved that they jeopardize their branding, potential branding opportunities and current branding opportunities as well. Yeah. And it remains to be seen because those are some real considerations um, that the players have, that the league has and that their broadcast partners will have. So, you know, that's, that is going to be interesting to see. The other thing, uh, Antonio, I wanted to get your thoughts on is if there is a return to play, that would be good news, right? Because that would mean the virus is, I don't want to say under control, but it's, you know, we're coming out of it, right? And so that would be good news from that standpoint. And it would be good news that the game is are now uh, going to be allowed to to be played. But how much time do you think players are going to need? Because right now there's a report out of a 25-day plan where once the green light is given by health and government officials for the league to be able to ramp up and, and to resume, players would take 11 days, train on their own, and then have a 14-day training camp. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Is that enough time? Uh- um, I, I think that the league has to be very sensitive to um, making sure that there is enough runway before we start because 
in, in 2011, when there was a lockout, um, we, the last time we had a lockout, there was an abbreviated training camp, abbreviated time to get ready, and we jumped into the 66-game 66, 66 season. And um, when we look at a player, and I say this with all due respect to this great player, but when we look at Derrick Rose, we had 66 games this year. that year. He missed 25 of those games with uh, different injuries before the first day of the playoffs, he tore his ACL. And that sort of led to all of the things that we saw in terms of how great he's playing now, but it led to all of the kind of a downfall for Derek from a production standpoint. And on that same day, Iman Shumpert also tore his ACL um, um, in the playoffs for the Knicks. And so the league has to be very sensitive to how much they expose players to rushing to getting back on the floor. Um, players, you, you, you always feel sometimes we have to be saved from ourselves because you always feel that you can jump on the floor and do what you do and you don't need much preparation. And the reality is the NBA season is a marathon and you have to make sure that you have enough runway. But if also, too, you also have to look at the individual approach of all the players as well, Jeff, because if some players have been diligent about making sure that they are on top of their fitness levels as much as, as we can while we're, in, while we're practicing social distancing and quarantining, um, I'm sure that the teams have been having Zoom meeting um, fitness sessions, and if those players have been diligent about that and maintaining their level of fitness that they had once the season uh, was suspended, I think that would be enough time. But if players weren't diligent about doing that, especially if you have players that were already out because they had uh, already out because of a pre-existing injury, that 25 days may not be enough for them to get in the game shape or those 14 days. Um, so it'd be interesting to see, uh, but I think it also depends on that individual player. And also from an organizational standpoint, their approach to um, uh, how we deal with the current situation that we're in. Yeah. And you hit on a couple of good points there, uh, including the, Look, there's going to be some real and is some real economic pressure for the NBA and all the other leagues that hopefully will return to return as right. quickly as they can right. within reason, right? Given, mm -hmm. you know, the state of the world at that point and the state of the virus at that point and, you know, the need to maintain the safety of everybody and the health and safety of everybody involved. Um, that's paramount. But you know, right behind that, and let's be clear, it uh, is going to be some real economic pressure on these leagues that have lost a tremendous amounts of money. And here's the other thing, Antonio, depending upon how long it is before games resume, players may start losing some money, right? Because, right, right. you know, the NBA players paid right now, but there's already been talk about NBA players having to, you know, take a hit. So, the, the, the economic pressure along with um, just the desire to get back on the court, you know, has to be, you know, taken against the, you know, the health considerations there, but it's going to be some pressure. Um, but like, as you said, the NBA has to be careful. The players association players, they all have to be careful in, you know, returning and, and, and what that, and what that looks like. Um, hey, the last thing I want to ask you, um, this Sunday, because we're recording here on a Thursday afternoon, uh, April 16th, but this Sunday, April 19th, for me, a big event and maybe for a lot of sports fans, and that is the mm -hmm. premiere of the, what they call it? The Last Dance, I think, the, the Chicago Bulls Michael Jordan documentary. Man, I'm looking forward 
to that. And I know you spent some time in Chicago after the Michael Jordan reign and everything else, but as a longtime basketball fan, what are your thoughts about this documentary that's upcoming? Um, I'm super excited, and uh, I'm certainly glad that it will all benefit from the fact that ESPN decided to move this um, documentary up. And, and uh, I again, I am from – I'm school of 23 all day. I wore 23 throughout my career, and, um, and it was – there were some difficult times wearing 23 growing up in Southern California during the Lakers' reign and, and Magic Johnson's reign. But um, I'm, I, I can't wait to watch this documentary and dive in and share some of my thoughts with uh, all of us as, as sports fans, the hoop fan, the basketball community. Uh, I'm very excited for it, for sure. Yeah, so am I. Because, um, again, Michael is, you know, I mean, look, so many – Michael has millions and millions of fans all across the world. The Bulls, right. you know, have millions of fans across the world, probably primarily because of Michael um, mm-hmm. and his dominance. Uh, but I'm looking forward to this, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing and reliving, you know, some of these great days. Um, because, you know, you know what it is, you know, like I'm a Knicks fan. And I remember when, <laughs> you know, the Knicks, you know, they used to get on Patrick Ewing and, you know, people in New York and others would criticize Patrick Ewing. And I remember during Ewing's, Ewing's Knicks career, I said, you know what? When we don't have Patrick Ewing anymore, Knicks fans who are down on him will realize what we had. And Absolutely. Look Absolutely. at where the Knicks have been pretty much since Patrick Ewing has, has gone. No, um, that's, that's you know, and, and so it's good to to be able to appreciate what you have when you have it. And then like here, for you know, it's, it's also like a, a double benefit for those of us who witnessed the greatness of Michael Jordan and those Chicago Bulls team teams to have an opportunity to revisit it, especially at a time like this. No, no question. And when you start thinking about Michael Jordan's impact off the floor and what he's done for the uh, game of basketball, um, he's one of the reasons why the NBA is probably one of the top 10 marketing companies in the world. Um, And it's literally a marketing company wrapped in basketball. And Michael Jordan is one of the overwhelming reasons why that's the case and he's also part he's also played a huge role in taking a company like nike and making it a pop culture icon bigger than the the sport of basketball and and so his influence even to this day is great and when you look at from a branding perspective when you look at the players now when you start looking at the shoe sales um, his shoe sales still trump whoever's the best player in the NBA is right now, and it's not really close. Yeah, and that's one of the more remarkable things about Michael. I mean, he was transcendent as a player, um, and but his cachet and his reputation and his influence and his impact on the marketplace and in the game just continues. It just really right. shows the level of of his greatness. We we haven't seen anyone like him, and and that's why again, looking forward to to this series. But um, and listen, man, Antonio, I appreciate you coming on, man, talking about the game. Uh, I I love hearing you talk about the game, not only because of your knowledge, but because of your passion. You really enjoy the game of basketball and it's good to hear you talk about it. And again, for those who haven't checked out this series, the hall of fame series, I encourage you to, to check it out. We have it where on like on LinkedIn. Is it on Facebook yes. as well? Yes. It's on LinkedIn, Antonio Williams. That's uh, my LinkedIn handle. It's also on Facebook, Instagram. Um, and on Facebook, it's a dot Williams basketball same on Instagram and um, we'll continue to share the content. I appreciate you, Jeff, uh, having me on and 
uh, sharing your platform with me to talk about this beautiful game that we all love and uh, looking forward to continuing to build our fellowship, Jeff, and uh, having many more of these uh, chats about not only basketball, but this great industry of sports that we all love. Yeah, no doubt. I, and certainly I, I look forward to having you come back on and, you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on, on the NBA situation and just the sports situation overall, but I look forward to having you back on and really appreciate you coming on today. So thanks a lot, Antonio. I appreciate it, Jeff. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Everybody stay safe out there.